Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Tuesday, January 25th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Stock markets yesterday, they swooned, they tumbled, they nosedived, whatever word you want to use, they were down. But then? The dip was bought. I do not think, however, that the fun is probably over in markets. We'll talk about this market movement with Rob Armstrong. He writes our daily unhedged newsletter. We'll also look at the latest hurdle for connected fitness company Peloton. And we'll go to the Persian Gulf to find out more about rebels in Yemen taking their fight into the United Arab Emirates. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. So U.S. stocks ended yesterday higher, but it was after one hell of a ride. At one point, the Nasdaq was down as much as 4%, and the S&P 500 was at one point down 10% from its high. That's technical correction territory. But it wasn't just U.S. stocks. All over the globe, from the FTSE to the Hang Seng, stocks took a beating. And this comes as the Federal Reserve is set to meet this week to talk about unwinding its pandemic stimulus that pumped up stock prices. So I'm joined now by Rob Armstrong. He's our U.S. financial commentator. Hey, Rob. Hey, how are you? Doing well. So um, yesterday's markets, how would you describe the activity that we saw? It was pretty wild. You know, we had a pretty rough week last week. And indeed, it's been a pretty rough January, especially for what we call growth stocks, long shots, high risk stuff, high volatility stuff has been selling off. And it looked like in the morning, yesterday, that that sell-off in, as it were, the dodgier edges of the market was really starting to spread into the core of the market, into bigger, more staid kind of blue chippy names. But then in the afternoon, we had a very strong rally. It was an extremely volatile day, uh, but the dip was bought. Uh, I do not think, however, that the fun is probably over in markets. Yeah, and that brings us to the why. You know, why did we see what we saw yesterday? I have a feeling that you're going to say something about the Fed. Well, the Fed is is part of the background here, but I think it's always important to remember markets are creatures of momentum and emotion, and those two things are often very hard to tell apart. So there is, especially on in very volatile or even panicked periods, there doesn't have to be a why. That said, we have a very long bull market in the past. We have very high equity valuations. We are heading into a Federal Reserve policy tightening cycle. That means both probably higher rates and the shrinking of the Fed balance sheet. And growth and demand have been excellent, but are maybe now looking a shade worse. Those are the, as it were, contextual factors. But the tricky thing about markets is all of those things could be true and no sell-off, and it would still make a good amount of sense. So, Rob, I know you were on the phone a lot yesterday talking to traders and investors and analysts to you know, get a sense of what they were thinking. What did they tell you? A lot of people that I spoke to pointed out the relative calm elsewhere in larger markets. In other words, that credit markets were calmer, you know, or that sort of asset-backed securities. It's like this is a still a reasonably concentrated sell-off in equities rather than a general panicked flight from risk. They, they always say in a real crisis, 
everything correlates. If you look at any chart of any price in the world in 2001, you know, they all collapsed at once synchronously, as it were. And that's not happening right now, which is a good thing. Rob Armstrong is the FT's U.S. financial commentator. You can subscribe to his daily newsletter on Hedged. We'll have the link in the show notes. Thanks, Rob. My pleasure. The connected fitness company Peloton has watched its shares careen down a steep and bumpy trail. And now it's crashed into an activist investor who wants to oust Peloton's chief executive and explore selling the company. To talk more about this, I've got our San Francisco correspondent, Patrick McGee, on the line. Hey, Patrick. Hi, Mark. So to remind listeners who aren't you know, spinning on their Peloton bikes. This was the company that exploded during the pandemic. Gyms closed, and it seemed like everyone wanted Pelotons and other gear so they could work out from home. What has happened since then? Yeah, for quarter after quarter, the likes of yours truly was, was writing that, you know, hey, Peloton really has to respond to this demand, um, you know, and really get bikes to people more quickly. And Peloton sort of had this lagged reaction where it took them a while. And then when they finally made big moves to do it, essentially, they built up this big inventory and the market turned. The vaccine came out, more competition in its space emerged. And the result was that they ended up with all this inventory and uh, less of a market to sell it to. And then CNBC reported that they had actually frozen production for several products in the coming months, and that caused its shares to fall another 25%. Peloton, I should point out, basically called the story erroneous. To be fair, Peloton's in this quiet period where maybe they can't tell us the full details, but it sounded like they're absolutely freezing some production, but just maybe not to the extent that was, that was mentioned in the article. Sure. So uh, if that wasn't bad enough, now we have this activist investor on the scene, Blackwell's Capital. It owns less than 5% of the company, but it's accusing Peloton's co-founder, John Foley, of losing $40 billion in shareholders' wealth and accuses him of mismanagement and misleading investors and hiring his wife as an executive. You know, is this all true, Patrick? The one point I would point out is, is I don't think the hiring his wife has any merit. John and his wife, Jill, basically came up with this company on their own, right, back in like 2012 as an idea. And she's been in charge of the apparel group within Peloton since 2014. Uh, but everything else, I mean, you look, Peloton was worth almost $50 billion at the height. And the height was basically 12 months ago to the day. So it's almost like stock market wise, they've given away all the gains of a pandemic. And you think of what a pandemic did. It closed down all the gyms and sort of gave Peloton a sort of environment that, that they couldn't have sort of authored better themselves. I guess the question I have for you is, how influential is Blackwell's, uh, you know, the, the activist investor making these claims and how likely that it's going to get what it wants, or is this just a lot of bluster? I'm in the bluster camp for the key reason that Peloton is one of these tech companies that has a dual share structure. And so John Foley, the founder, and others actually have these Class B shares, and every one of them is worth 20 times that of an ordinary share, which means that shareholders basically have no say whatsoever. Just to zoom out a little bit, you know, does Peloton's decline tell us anything more widely about the survival of the connected fitness industry? Or is this an isolated scenario? The growth that was seen during the worst time of COVID had some investors convinced that, oh my God, this company can really grow at these crazy rates. Uh, and John Foley's the CEO of Peloton. His main message was, we're not a COVID story, that this is just brought forward connected fitness, but we really think that this is the future. 
And I would say that's the main question that's really in flux. You know, was Peloton just a COVID story or did basically COVID serve as a sort of huge advertisement for connected fitness and the growth rates that we saw during COVID are what we're going to see the next few years? Investors have very much lost faith in that thesis, frankly. I don't know that it's wrong, but that's what they've lost faith in. Patrick McGee is our San Francisco correspondent. He also wrote a killer article about connected fitness in uh, the FT weekend. You should check it out. We'll have a link to it in our show notes. Thank you, Patrick. Thanks, Mark. The civil war in Yemen is rippling out. Yesterday, the United Arab Emirates said it had intercepted ballistic missiles fired by Houthi rebels from Yemen at the UAE capital of Abu Dhabi. This comes a week after another more deadly attack on the city. The FT Simeon Kerr describes this latest assault as unsettling, but not a major concern. But at the same time, the authorities here will know that if this were to become a regular event, it would become a lot more problematic for businesses. People would potentially think twice about investing here in property, which is a big sector. And the big concern, especially in Dubai, would be what impact might it have on tourism and aviation if this were to become more regular. Now, the reason Houthi rebels are attacking the UAE is because it's part of the Saudi-led coalition against the Houthi rebels. And the coalition has been making inroads against the rebel advances. Just in the last month or so, UAE aligned forces joined the battle with the government against the Houthis and started to make progress. And it seems that the fact that their allies were proving decisive in moving against the Houthis, that seems to have triggered the Houthi response to take the battle into the heartland of the UAE onto UAE soil. So can the UAE defend itself against these attacks? Well, the UAE has fantastic technology and weaponry, and that is proving to be successful so far in repelling most of this stuff. That's going to be the main strategy. The politics of Yemen and the actions that its allies take in the theatre in Yemen itself is also going to be important. And not least, relations with Iran. The Iranians are allied with the Houthis. The UAE calculation would be one that they thought that if there were military gains on the ground, that would help persuade the Houthis to come to the negotiating table and try with international and UN support to hammer out a political settlement, which is absolutely vital to end what is a catastrophic humanitarian disaster. It's hard to see what will persuade them to the negotiating table without perhaps some kind of Iranian cajoling. Simeon Curry is the FT's Gulf business correspondent. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT news briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.